On February 10, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a discussion titled, Will Renewables Renew Democracy? The event opened with a special welcome address from Gerard Aro, French Ambassador to the United States. A panel discussion followed featuring Corinne Donian-Sos, Vice President of Greater Lyon, Stephen Pike, Interim CEO of the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, and Sean Chapman, Vice President at Solar City. The conversation was moderated by Muriel Royer, Adjunct Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. To learn more about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, being here today. We have to start promptly because the ambassador has to take a plane and has to leave at 4.30 sharp. Uh, sharp. So uh, this is my pleasure and honor to introduce this uh, panel on uh, renewable energies and democracy. Um, as an introduction, um, Ambassador Aro uh, will give a talk uh, in the wake of the COP21. And um, I will shorten a bit my introduction because I want to save time for, uh, for him. We are extremely happy and honored to uh, have with us Ambassador uh, Aro, who will make some welcome remarks and uh, we'll discuss with the audience until 4.30. Um, before that, I'm going to introduce him to you. And um, Gérard Harrault has been ambassador of France uh, in the U.S. since 2014. An experienced diplomat with a more than 30-year-long career, he has previously served as France's ambassador to Israel, uh, as a Middle East expert at the French embassy in D.C., and um, in several high-ranking positions in security and strategic affairs in the French administration. Most recently, he was a permanent representative uh, of France to the UN in New York, where he was instrumental in crafting important resolutions on Libya, on the Ivory Coast, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mali, Central African Republic. He was also the French negotiator in the Iran nuclear talks. This impressive record is probably why Samantha Power called you a master strategist, a diplomatic and bureaucratic samurai, and one of the most authentic and authentically decent people ever to practice diplomacy. Authentic you are. You were born in Marseille and educated in the best schools um, of France. And you have not lost your franc-parler or outspokenness at the ENA, the National School for Administration. You are a very open person, open about yourself, about your job, and about the world. You have not hidden your intention to bring diplomacy into the 21st century. And you embody a new generation of diplomats who uh, step in the public sphere, publish articles, participate in public debates such as this one, and use uh, social media. Yes, you tweet, and we know it. And this is why we created a special hashtag with, for this event, Mr. Ambassador, uh, which is uh, hashtag Renew La Demo with a French accent and a La before demo. Um, I should say you're quite the democratic diplomat, uh, Ms. Monsieur Ambassador. And who better than you could introduce this panel on renewable energies and democracy? So with no further ado, and because time presses us, I leave you the floor, and thank you again for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, really it's great to be here uh, with you today. And, um, you know, I've spent uh, 
most of really a, a lot of time at, uh, in 2015, you know, spreading the gospel of climate change throughout the U.S. And I was quite impressed that uh, crossing the Beltway, suddenly I, all the silliness that we were hearing on the Hill, you know, basically nobody was referring to it anymore, that all the cities of this country, uh, all the major corporations in these countries uh, were committed uh, to fighting uh, climate change. And I visited also a lot of laboratories uh, where it was obvious that this creative country uh, was engaged into, you know, really furthering the, the technology that we need for fighting climate change. The, climate, the technology is there or very close, uh, very close to be there. In a sense, um, you know, the question was for us uh, when we engaged the negotiation uh, what, how could it work? And, uh, and, and the, 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 the answer that we had uh, was uh, the, our vision of the future. What would be the vision of the future if we wanted that this agreement in Paris could actually be a tipping point? It's not the end of the road, it's the beginning of the road. Uh, where the question was how to be uh, really to have all the stakeholders uh, really engaged and, and launching a unified message being, yes, we are serious about low carbon economy. And that's meant that first we, we needed to have the states on board, but we didn't, we didn't need only to have the states on board. So to have the states on board, uh, we got uh, the principle of one size doesn't fit all. Uh, very clearly, uh, one, one of the problems that we were facing was that we had very different countries and that we couldn't simply, we couldn't uh, ask them to make the same sort of commitments. You know, between Germany and, and, and Burundi, uh, simply uh, they are so different, there are such different phases of their development that it's, it's not decent, I should say, to ask them to make uh, the same commitment. So, it means that we have asked, we have simply asked to every, to every country individually to make its national commitment, what was called the, the IN, INDC. And at the end of the day, we got around 186 INDCs out of 192 countries, uh, which was uh, actually uh, quite, uh, quite significant. But the second, the second, the second point, and on this first point, uh, people have really concluded when you add the 186 commitments, you say, oh, you don't reach the, uh, uh, you don't reach the goal of the, of the two degrees Celsius, you know, the limitation of the global warming to the two degrees Celsius. In a sense, and maybe uh, uh, it's a bit uh, provocative, we, we, are, we don't think it, it matters so much uh, because uh, we do think that in the coming years, uh, in a sense, each country will be obliged to review its own commitments, uh, considering not only the situation, the pressure of the public opinion, but simply the progress of the technology. We, do, we don't know right now, in 2016, we don't know what the technology will be in 2017, 2018, and, and so on. And, uh, you know, you know the figures, you know the price of solar energy in the last decades has been decreased, has been cut by four, by a factor four. Uh, and we know that there are in front of us 
uh, uh, we have other uh, technological uh, significant breakthrough uh, which are quite possible, in, uh, especially in uh, the field of, for instance, uh, energy storage. So our idea was very clearly the agreement has been a sort of political commitment. But a political commitment that uh, uh, we want to be sure it will be implemented. So it means that for us, in a sense, the most important part of the commitment was to have a review process. And actually, that was one of the most difficult uh, points of the negotiation because countries like China didn't want to have any uh, review process. So we had to insert in the text the idea of a review process, a peer review process, and I will come to it, but of course, in the coming months, in the coming years, it will be one of the challenges that we are going to face is to define and to implement uh, this, this review process. But beyond what we really wanted in Paris is uh, uh, to have all the stakeholders on board. Because uh, fighting climate change is, in a sense, is changing our way of life. But changing our way of life, of course, not overnight. You know, it will take years, decades. But you don't change uh, uh, the way of life by a top-down approach, by the states deciding everything. In France, we would love to, to do this way, uh, but we have to adjust to other countries, you know, who are, who are weaker than we are. And so, uh, and, uh, so we have to, uh, to call seriously to, to have the cooperation of uh, the cities. And there was a, a summit of the cities which was chaired by uh, Mayor Hidalgo, the mayor of the city of Paris, uh, with Michael Bloomberg who did a great job as the special representative of the UN Secretary General for Cities. And we had also the business community, which made uh, commitments, either commitments of, of the private corporations themselves, when you have a big private corporations, or uh, commitments by sectors. You know, really, the cement industry, for instance, made a commitment. The oil producers made commitments, for instance, to get rid of the flaming on the wells, uh, so we, we had also and the, the mobilization of, of the, the corporations. And on all corporations, states, I think we should express, I really I want to express our gratitude to the Obama administration. I think President Obama has been totally instrumental, and we know the political, the political challenge that he's facing at home. He has been instrumental uh, into uh, first bringing China, into the negotiation, which was critical, because China being on board, uh, all the other countries felt obliged to be, to be on board, but also mobilizing the business community in this country uh, to make a significant, significant uh, uh, commitment. So now going to the, to the, to the, to the substance. The substance, it's a universal agreement. Uh, and, uh, and this universal uh, agreement is a dynamic agreement, as I have said. Uh, it creates a five-year review mechanism of the commitments with a first meeting scheduled in 2023. But an initial review of the efforts being made will take place as early as 2018. That will be motivate each country to bolster its commitments even before the agreement comes into force. We are not, you know, never... I think nobody has ever accused the French to be naive, and uh, it's maybe the opposite. Uh, and so we, we do know that there are some countries which felt obliged to, 
to sign the agreement and which have had second thought when coming back home. Uh, we are sure that there will be, we had three steps forwards, we will have two steps backwards. Uh, so uh, it's very important in the coming months, in the coming years, that the citizens, the NGOs, uh, continue to pull uh, pressure on their national authorities. I think it's very important that the civil society uh, has a, a, a really a major role to play, but also the cities, you know, uh, the cities and again the territories. You know, there was a very good example in a sense, you know, in Canada. You know, before the election of uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau, you know, the previous prime minister was totally opposed to any policy against the climate change, but actually some provinces were very active, you know, Quebec or, or British Columbia, and actually were even engaged into a gas price, you know, gas pricing agreement uh, with the state of uh, Washington, Oregon, and, and, and California. So you can really even, uh, in some circumstances, you know, really, you can work with the sub-state uh, sub uh, level. So, in terms of monitoring, uh, we will have to define a common uh, framework of transparency and so that commitments and contributions can be tracked and accounted, accounted for. And last point, this agreement is legally binding as much as it could be. That's diplomatic way of saying we needed to have the Americans on board, so we had to be very shrewd in the, in the way uh, to write down the agreement so that the administration wouldn't be obliged to go to the Senate for some obscure reasons I'm not going to enter into. <laughs> you know, really. Actually, uh, of course, um, you know, I know very well the United Nations, and a basic problem that we have been facing is the money. You know, basically, the poor countries were telling us, you are really trying to prevent us from doing what you have done you know, basically polluting a maximum, you know, for, for your growth. You know that in the beginning of 19th century, London, uh, 20th century, London was a total nightmare of, of pollution, you know, really, and uh, the smog, you know, till the 50s in London was killing hundreds of, of people. Uh, and basically, uh, we are asking uh, countries which are very poor not to do the same. So you know, they, they feel it as a constraint, even if you can argue that green growth is also bringing, creating jobs. Uh, but they are asking us uh, in terms of financing or in terms of technology transfer to help them. So we have created you know, this fund of $100 billion, uh, which is the, the target every year uh, for helping this country uh, to, to respect their, their commitment, and uh, we have set a, a target of to year 2025 uh, to, uh, for, 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 for this fi financing. That's all very nice, uh, but uh, now uh, it has to really to become, as I've said, to become a reality. And we are, the French, we have, we are defined, we have defined the four-point uh, plan for the future. The first important step will be the agreement's signature and ratification. You know, really, in order for it to enter into force, it will have to be signed and ratified by at least 55 countries representing 55% of the greenhouse gas emissions. The opening ceremony of the, of the signing will be in New York on April the 22nd. And 
the number of, of head of state in New York will establish or the momentum in that regard. And of course, uh, uh, the French president will be in New York to be one of the first one uh, to sign. The second one will be the implementation details uh, of the agreement, and there are a lot of details, as I have said, especially on the monitoring mechanism. So there will be a meeting in Bonn, because Bonn, Germany, is the place where the, the UN body in charge of, of this, issue, this issue is, and this meeting will have to translate the agreement's principles and objectives into concrete mechanisms. We have a momentum. We have to do it very quickly before the dark side of the force strikes back. <laughs> we will work to, to reach a common, precise definition of climate finance to determine the terms of the five-year review of national commitments and establish the rules of transparency in monitoring of the commitments. So it will be really critical to go from the principles to the implementation. The third point concerns the, the, the pre-2020 period uh, before the agreements entry into force. And, uh, of course, we are now uh, making a lot of uh, really sectorial initiatives. Uh, we have in, uh, working on International Solar Alliance with the Indian Prime Minister. Uh, the official secretariat of this institution has been established and inaugurated by India and France in Delhi. Uh, when the president of France was there, and we will contribute 300 million euros to this, to this alliance. Uh, but we are working also on a lot of public-private partnership uh, launched by the U.S. and France for the development of clean technology. Uh, and also work, we are working with the U.S. for the electrification of Africa, which is certainly first, uh, I think, a humanitarian, human uh, necessity, but it's also a way to fight climate change since uh, the, 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 the Africans are very often using uh, charcoals, charcoal, for instance, uh, for their daily, daily life. And uh, the approval of, by U.S. Congress of the Electricity Africa Act is, in a sense, a very important uh, step forward. I'm, uh, you know, and four points, and uh, I'm obliged to be very, very short. I'm I really... I'm really sorry. Maybe if my plane is late, I could stay, but, uh, you know, really. Um, uh, we have to prepare the next COP, which is COP22 in Marrakech, Morocco, at the end of 2016. And uh, we are working with our Moroccan friends, uh, so to keep, uh, really, to keep the momentum and to achieve a new, uh, a new success. But there are other sectors we are, we are working. We are working on civil aviation, you know, the civil aviation emission, you know, really, we do hope we are doing, France is really committed to have an agreement signed in Montreal by the International Organization of Civil Aviation. We are working with the maritime, the International Maritime Organization also, uh, and uh, we are working also in the framework of the Montreal Protocol, uh, as you know, which is to phase out the hydrofluorocarbon refrigerants. So there, you know, really, First, meet, implementing the Agreement of Paris, uh, which means keeping the momentum, working with, with everybody. And, you know, a good example was given, you know, I think by the manager of uh, the BlackRock uh, Asset Management uh, Fund, you know, what, the most important in the world, which, uh, who has said recently that actually climate change should be at the heart of the decision of events, investment. So we have a momentum, you know, really. So we have a lot of goodwill uh, everywhere. 
So we have to, to federal, you know, to, to, to bring together all this energy, and we are doing our best to do it, and we are doing it with the, the support of this administration. Uh, and that's the, uh, and, and secondly, we have to work in all, all different fields. You know, the, the result, uh, fighting climate change, will be also the result of millions of small decisions. Uh, decisions by the citizens, uh, decisions by the territories, the cities, uh, and decisions by the states. So we need you. We need each of you so that the, the, the agreement of Paris, which has been a success, could I be, become a concrete step forward for the, for the good of the humankind. Thank you. I'm sorry to have been so... Oh, it's important that you talk so we know what to ask you. So we have exactly uh, seven minutes for questions from the audience. I see one here. Could you, yeah, just introduce yourself and ask your question. I'm sure you have a strong voice. Oh, yes. Seeing you, you know, we'll... Oh, yeah, there's a... Yeah, there's a you can maybe uh, detach it and have it... So recorded. my name is uh, Nicolas. I'm a research fellow with the Ash Center here at the Kennedy School, and I have a two-pronged question vis-à-vis -vis your four-point plan. The, the, the first one is, France is co-chairing Habitat 3 with Ecuador this year, which is a huge milestone in the post-2015 agenda. What do you think should be the goal for that, given that um, the objective here is not a legally binding agreement, but a declaration, an agenda? What could you expect from that? And the second part is, one of the big, I would say, hopes that we could have from COP22 relates to uh, the creation of the carbon markets and pricing of CO2. Uh, can you say you know, a few words about that and what we can expect? You know, first, on, on Habitat Free Conference, um, you know, it's typically the, the question of when, personally, I know nothing, but it doesn't prevent me from reading what the note, you know, really, which was given on me. And we said, and don't ask me, you know, follow-up question, because I can't go further than that. They said, you know, because the United Nations Habitat Free Conference on Sustainable Urban Development to be held in Quito, uh, Ecuador, in October, will be also a good opportunity to see the Paris Agreement in action. It will be the first such high-profile event on housing and urbanization in 20 years. As a co-chair with Ecuador, France is deeply involved in making sure this event brings about a renewed universal commitment to tackle climate change through urban policies. I have nothing more, more specific. I'm really, really, uh, really sorry. Uh, the, second, the second question was, sorry? The carbon carbon price, yes. Yeah. The car of course, uh, we would have wanted to have carbon pricing in the agreement, but from the beginning, it was a non-starter. It was really a non-starter. Yeah. Uh, so our, our uh, hope, uh, first, it doesn't prevent people from entering into carbon pricing. So we have, you know, we have several initiatives on carbon pricing, as you know, uh, we have, you know, the, the Western and provinces, or Canadian provinces and the Western states. We have here the, the 10, I think, 10, the Eastern states, you know, really, the European Union. You have some cities in China, you know, China, you, you have. So there is a movement. Um, the problem is, for instance, on the European Union, the price which has been chosen is makes it more or less useless. So I think that we will have to work uh, in the coming years on, on, this, on this issue. But it's very clear that we won't be able, at least in a foreseeable future, to have it as a universal, uh, universal solution. So it's better maybe to move forward uh, in the, uh, the, frame, the, the, the countries, the cities, which are ready to move forward.
to show that actually it's working. But for really, but we, we the negotiator, we knew from the beginning we couldn't, we couldn't have it, you know, really. So no official carbon pricing, but maybe soon. Uh, maybe time for one or two very short questions. Yes, can you uh, please introduce yourself and ask, uh, the microphone is circulating. George Mokray, I publish a weekly that looks at what's happening at the colleges and universities in the community about energy and other things. Um, friend of mine went to Paris, and he was he was very happy to see that the French initially were talking about soil carbon sinks. Because yes. everything we're talking about here is sources. Everything that people talk about generally mm. in terms of climate change is sources. Very few people talk about sinks. Carbon really do reduce atmospheric carbon very therapy, which is which talks about all of those. Yeah. And, and, and so wondering about the what about talking about the sources and the sinks? What about soil carbons, water systems, all of those? All right. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Can you? So, uh, uh, so, so again. We, uh, you have to, the, the agreement was the lowest common denominator that we could, uh, we could have. In a sense, we, we were pleasantly surprised to get uh, uh, what we got. Uh, but at the same time, as I've said, uh, it's the tipping point. It's only the beginning. So there, and there is also now a lot of sectorial initiatives. You know, really, my Minister of Agriculture, for instance, was here working on the, I think, for, you know, really uh, the, the composition of the soil, which has an importance, you know, on the, uh, also on the carbon emission and the carbon, you know, really, uh, and he has signed an agreement with the Minister of, of your Department of, of, uh, of Agriculture. So now, uh, and that's the, the challenge that we have, is to keep all these initiatives uh, moving forward together in all the sectors, all either industrial, either economy sectors or the cities, you know, or the, you know. The cities, it's important in a sense of also the helping, helping, you know, really having a network of cities. For instance, that the city of Paris could help the city of Dakar, you know, because as you know, it, uh, fighting climate change, for instance, is the waste management. Waste management in the cities of the third world. Uh, the, the, the water, water system. You know, climate change and, and sustainable development are going end, end, end to end. So we have to, to work on all these, these, uh, these sectors. And of course, the, the French, especially because we are not going to be the president at the end of November 2016, we can't do anything. So that's the reason why uh, we are trying to mobilize some countries uh, or some, uh, some uh, heads of state and government. For instance, the Prime Minister of India on, on solar energy, on transfer of, of technology. Uh, and so that's reason also the message that I'm, I'm saying, we need each of you in your, in your sector. Uh, you know, to, to, to work, because it's hundreds of different initiatives. You know, you are referring to one of them, but as you know, there are hundreds of them. Last question. Oh, wow. Uh, one last here. Yeah. Um, this gentleman over there. Yeah. Thank you. And please keep your questions very concise. All right, my name Thank is Ray you. Patel. I'm an economic a student, a graduate student. Uh, my question was, how is France uh, positioned, especially in Europe, to take the advantages economically going to the future uh, regarding this problem of uh, having 
treaties with India and elsewhere? No, I, I think uh, I'm really convinced that, and I think a lot of people are, are much better equipped than I am to answer to the question that I, I guess green growth is going to create jobs. It's going also to create another type of, of society, you know, really, which by the way is also linked to the development of, of internet, of the e-economy, you know, really an economy based of networks, uh, really of, uh, the, and that's the reason why I'm insisting on local communities, uh, really. So there is a lot of things which are coming. It's a new revolution. Uh, and, and France wants to be part of the revolution. And that's the reason why the, the French authorities are su supporting innovation, you know, really. And, uh, and here we have the deputy mayor of Lyon, who will be uh, one of the panelists, will, which is a very good example of a city totally engaged into this sort of this new economy which is, uh, which is coming, based on innovation, based on the quality of education of our, of our, of our citizens, uh, based only, and that's a bit difficult for the French, but based on also, as I've said, working in networks, not top-down, it's not possible anymore, it's bottom-up, communities, people, cities have to, have to work together, and I do think that the French, we have our assets, the way you have also the U.S., obviously, you go to all your universities, your laboratories, and you see how creative is, is, is this country. And the last point I would ask you, all of you, is to call your senator and representative, really, so that really, uh, maybe for some, of, for some of them, maybe they will discover that actually there is a climate change, <laughs> really. Thank you very much. I'm really sorry to be so, so short. It's not very polite. I would have wanted to stay with you, but really I have to take my plane and to, to fly back to D.C., you know, where it has, you know, it has snowed, as you can guess, snow in D.C. I'm oh, really, it will be terrible. It will be a chaos, you know, really. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ambassador Aro. Um, uh, we are sad to see you leave, and I'm now calling to the, um, um, to the chair, our, uh, my friend panelist, um, Mrs. Karine Donien-Sauz from Lyon, Mr. Sean Chapman, and Mr. Stephen Pike. We are now starting the second part of this panel, and I welcome um, the people who have uh, just arrived, who are arriving. Um, as uh, Ambassador Haro was uh, saying, uh, climate change is profoundly modifying our understanding of uh, democracy, and the, the progressive assumptions of the past, mass consumptions, American way of life, Western way of life, are put in question if we, the people of the planet, want to endure over time and share with our children a world that is livable. Energy represents a majority of the CO2 emissions that warm up the planet and threaten our way of life. Um, from this point of view, uh, renewable energies, wind and solar power, have become an incredible opportunity to remedy climate change. They are a technological and economic new frontier, pushed always further by decreasing costs on expanding transnational markets, and, um, and nowadays, making clean, cheap, and profitable energy is, is possible for the people of both uh, global north and south. 
Now, how this works with democracy, which is uh, the government of the people uh, and which requires a certain degree of equality and which now needs to integrate the care of our planet in our notion of the common good is another story particularly in the U.S. where some resistances to renewables are built in democracy itself. I'm thinking of the role of certain utilities um, which have elected or appointed boards, sometimes supported by powerful lobbies which resist renewables. So renewables and democracy is, um, to use Bill McKibben's words, uh, the epic question of our time. Uh, Bill uh, was invited to come here. He couldn't make it. He gave us a little video clip that I will show during discussion, maybe, if we have time. Um, but I just want to say Bill inspired us for this, uh, for this panel. So the question of, um, of renewing democracy through renewables, um, to do that, we need well-informed and involved citizen consumers. And I think this was the message conveyed here by the ambassador. We need clear incentives and signals. We need reactive businesses, savvy regulators, and political leaders. Uh, the issues at stake are somewhat complex, and it is one goal of today's discussion to open the black box of renewables to public debate and to help uh, citizens figure out what to do, at what scale, at what cost, with whom, in order to go green and to consume clean. So, today with us, three distinguished panelists will help <coughs> us um, understand the different facets of this question. Um, to my right, Mrs. Karine Donien-Sauz, who is Deputy Mayor of the City of Lyon and Vice President of Greater Lyon, an urban community of about 1,003,000 um, uh, people, gathering 55 municipalities in a region that is the first industrial base of France. Lyon is a metropolis particularly keen on innovation, and it has developed under Mrs. Donia Sose's leadership a global smart city strategy, which she will present today in her talk entitled Smart and Sustainable Policies in Lyon. Um, to my left, John Chapman is um, vice president in charge of uh, policy and electricity markets at Solar City. Um, he will tell us more about the business model and the strategy that fueled the incredible success story of this company, which was founded in California and which is now the biggest and fastest growing installer of rooftop solar in the country, uh, finishing one solar array every three minutes and bringing power to the people at no upfront cost. And uh, last but not least, um, Stephen Pike, who is the interim CEO of the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, an organization which is engaged in building a nation-leading clean energy economy in Massachusetts. And uh, Stephen will unveil for us the policy aspects of renewables uh, in this state and in the U.S., in his presentation entitled Clean Energy and Economic Growth, Technology, Innovation, and Choice in Massachusetts. Uh, so I thank you, uh, you all three, very much for being here. I'm going to uh, leave you the floor for about 15 minutes each, after which we'll have a dialogue with the audience. Um, and we have in the audience uh, a few privileged respondents who uh, have arrived, and uh, it should be a very interesting debate. And we really mean this to be a debate for citizens and specialists, but 
um, very open a public discussion on, a, on an issue that is some, somehow still uh, complex. So, Mrs. Donia Souza, I'm, I'm going to call you to the to the floor. Uh, do you want to stay here no, why not? or stand? Yeah. So, uh, good evening, everyone. And I have to say that it's my great pleasure, great honor uh, to be able to share my experience as a city leader and more specifically to the next generation. Uh, dear Muriel, thank you for hosting uh, me at this uh, Kennedy School for a debate on this critical question, how a sustainable urban development is uh, an opportunity to renew not just a democracy, but also how to practice uh, politics. And uh, what is at stake for a city leader is to prepare the future and to take the right decisions, sometimes short-term short, um, decision or sometimes long-term decision to shape this 21st century city uh, that we are going to live in. And it's not just world. Uh, we are really experiencing an incredible period of transformational uh, shifts, and the shift to uh, 21st century comes with a very complex set of environmental, economic, and social uh, transition. My 14-year-old uh, daughter told me last time, of course, to deal with me to get out with friends, hey, mom, we are not anymore to the 20th century. We are not anymore in a black and white world. And I have to say she's right. We are not anymore um, at the in the 20th century. So what's different uh, today and what's different for a city leader? Firstly, um, the significant and increasing role of cities. Cities are where we're going to shape concrete uh, solutions, much more than what the state can do. And what's next, next is a world of a city. And I have to say that the mayor is probably the rising star. The mayor is also the closer politician personality with her citizen. Secondly, we are all in agreement, and it's almost uh, a worldwide agreement now with the COP21, that the climate change is a very, very serious risk, not just for the planet, but for human beings. Resources are limited, and our lifestyle needs to change. And finding the path uh, for sustainable solution is a requirement we have to deal with, a new condition for any future plan. Energy efficiency is uh, also a good driver for the city transformation, uh, a good driver to accelerate the different transition. Economic transition first, uh, where we have to find a new form of economic growth. And energy, I have to say, is an economic sector by itself, a future a strategic segment. Uh, but we also have to change the, the way we manufacture goods, so our way of working, uh, our way of consuming. The second transition is democratic and social. Meet, it means um, meet evolving citizen expectation and understand emerging social practices. The society is changing, but also need to change, and we need to accelerate uh, that move. And last, it's about global transition. Um, as a city leader, we have to focus now on the right international alliances, and it's why we're in Boston, in the context of a very sharp competition between cities. 
But there is also good news. The good news is that, you know, technologies such as clean tech, digital, robotics, or even biotech come to a point where uh, they open large and very exciting perspective and also new interaction, interaction with the citizen. For a city leader, it's urgent to take decision and to make choice, which is not easy at all. So um, what I would like to explain to you is how we know we are, we are engaged to meet this different objective. And I'm, um, I'm going to underline three elements of our strategy for sustainable development. And then I will focus specifically on a concrete uh, example reflecting pretty well these three layers. So it uh, starts with a new vision for a city that's changed the way of managing urban development. We have in Lyon a very intense urban planning driven by a model uh, of multipolar and multimodal city. The model of city with a downtown and suburban area where people live is naturally efficient and even uh, desirable today. So we are reshaping our city with districts that mix up business, residence, leisure offer like small village, small community, uh, but also with districts that regroup uh, all players from a specific economic field to capture the innovation that can come from interaction. Lyon Confluence is, a, for example, a newly created district that is doubling down um, the center of Lyon with very high energy standard. And this is for us today the technology windows with a very highest concentration of smart grid and smart community project. Another example is uh, Lyon Pardieu, which is for the second largest uh, business district in France. And this district is going to be entirely redesigned in the next uh, 10 coming years to become the bed of experiments of very innovative services. And these new services are going to be tested with the population before being implementing. And we have opened for that a living lab that is called TUBA, uh, Tube for Urban Experimentation, that just is focusing on that. Um, we, uh, aside this urban planning, we also have intensely developed multi-model offer. It's a combined offer between car sharing, with dedicated infra infrastructure, with soft modes such as bridges, tunnel, and also public transportation. And it's not just because it's eco-friendly, it's also because um, of the sharing principle. Uh, and because the sharing principle is friendly, it's like a small part of our local lifestyle. The second layer is that we've been, we are very engaged in the climate agenda, agenda since uh, 2005. We are part as a city of the convenient of mayors <coughs> that make house the objective fixed by the European Commission that we can summarize by the gimmick um, 320 by 2020, uh, which means reducing the, gas, the green gas emission by 20%. Uh, reducing the energy consumption by 20% and increasing the use of renewable uh, by 20%. But the fact is that the local government, the local authority, has a very limited direct impact on gas emission, only uh, for around 20% of them. 60% uh, are due to industry, 
and more specifically in Lyon, as we have, uh, as we are an industrial, um, a very strong industrial place, 30% added to transportation and 70% to building. So what we've done is that we uh, have engaged a diverse keeper from these different fields, uh, from a diagnosis that we um, that we have shared with them to make sure that we have a common uh, project to share together. And the result is uh, 20, uh, 26 action from 84 different partners. It's a, a perfect example of the, what the ambassador was saying regarding the COP20, but it's already there, I will say. So um, the result of that is that we have reduced the global impact of 11% on gas emission. That's the result uh, that we have today, uh, which is great. And um, the last layer is that uh, Lyon is one of the cities determined in implementing a package of solution of measure to shape a smart city. The urban regeneration uh, and extension that I mentioned earlier is today the playground for large-scale experimentation, large enough to activate a wide range of expertise and, and uh, stakeholders that go beyond the innovation strategy from a single stakeholder. And we use the uh, city as a laboratory, and we specifically have targeted uh, four fields. The first one is a smart energy, where we have the highest concentration of smart grid and smart uh, uh, demonstrator uh, in Europe, uh, mobility solution, daily life services. But we uh, have also very focused our attention on creating the condition for a collective intelligence to enhance the capacity uh, from community to regroup and to provide contribution uh, to, the, uh, to the public authority. And we set up for that a governance that is based on a collaborative approach. So the result is 40 ongoing projects, uh, including 100 partners engaged in execution of this uh, project and 2 million of uh, euro in private um, uh, investment. So let's just start, uh, talk about now uh, about Lyon Smart Community very uh, shortly. So Lyon Smart Community is a great example uh, of an international alliance with Japan. We, um, we, um, it has been deployed in this um, newly created district, Lyon Confluence. Um, it's a um, new smart community is about a community management system combining a car sharing system with the introduction of renewable, the construction of a zero emission building and the eco-regeneration of a set of existing social building. And it was what it was imp uh, important. Um, this is a budget of uh, 50 million Euro invested by the Japanese agencies and Edo. It includes 30 different partners. And the Metropole of Lyon has played a role of um, um, uh, easing the deployment by managing the administrative issue, but also by engaging the, the population to make sure that they're fully involved in, um, in what we wanted uh, to, to do. Sorry, just, yes, here, yes. So um, what we learned from this experimentation is that this alliance with Japan gave us a very new perspective about smart energy. 
the Japanese approach is first oriented on creating a smart community where in France, the social dimension is less a focus. We are very much focused on smart grid, on the system itself, and, um, and it's, um, it's something very different that we learned from this uh, you know, partnership with Japan. Secondly, engaging the population is uh, incredibly challenging. Everyone is fine with the concept of an eco-friendly uh, lifestyle, except when you ask to people to change their lifestyle. That's a problem. And uh, it's a long way, and sometimes uh, we can see that their primary concerns are very different. For example, um, with this um, uh, social housing, residents were more concerned by housing renovation than looking about their consumption. So such projects are incredibly com complex, and you have some time to deal with very uh, opposite objective, uh, um, objective from partners, but also from the, from the population. So um, just as a conclusion, uh, what I have to say is that um, when we think about you know, energy and sustainability, uh, what is um, most important is probably to organize a cultural shift uh, for everyone. It's not just about technology, it's really about, you know, educate people to innovation, uh, to make sure that they agree to change. It's a mindset that needs to be really uh, fixed and, uh, and it's really, you know, the responsibility that we take as a city leader. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mrs. Donia Soz, we'll have uh, the opportunity to go back to some precise examples uh, that are really fascinating. So let's move on to the next presentation, um, which is that by Sean Chapman from Solar City. And we discussed the title, I forgot to announce it. It's uh, Power from the People. Uh, so, uh, Sean. Uh, well, thank you very much. That was your innovation, not mine. So I have to give credit where, where credit is due. Um, how many folks in the room are familiar with Solar City, who we are, and what we do? Uh, about half. That's good. Um, we can do better. Um, so uh, we founded in 2006, uh, July the 4th, a very important day uh, for us and our country's history. It seemed like a good idea to declare independence from fossil. Um, uh, our main objective at the time was to bring solar energy into the mainstream. So build it beyond the uh, Elon Musks of the world and bring it to the Sean Chapmans of the world um, and allow folks who, you know, are just working folks be able to attain uh, the clean energy dream and vision. And we did that by providing a clean energy lease uh, for household consumers, much of the way it had been innovated for larger scale clean energy projects, and, and this is how power plants get financed as well. So um, we are now in eight, 19 states. We have a portfolio of business from residential to commercial to uh, public sector, schools, all of that. Um, and we acquired a solar manufacturer uh, last year. Um, no, excuse me. It was the year before that, um, 2014, uh, Saleva. Um, announced that we were moving that technology from Hong Kong our, uh, and what we call Fab 2, Fabrication Facility 2, is in uh, Fremont, California, in the old Solyndra building. Um, I don't know if that name rings a bell to anybody or means anything to anyone here, but it means a lot to me, and usually I have a nervous breakdown when I hear that term. Um, but it's, so it's very fun for us to uh, kind of exercise that ghost and, and be in that building. 
Um, Fab Three will be uh, located in Buffalo, New York, um, and we're we're building that facility out now. Currently, um, we're running a bit behind. If anybody is a, an investor in the company and listened to our earnings call yesterday, we're running a little bit behind schedule because uh, technologies. You know, these tools are apparently complicated to build when you're dealing with something like quantum tunneling. So, um, much like the ambassador before me, please don't ask me any questions about that. That's all I know. Um, so, I was asked here today to come talk about um, rena renewable energy and, and empowering democracy. And I kind of through these remarks, I want to lay out some of what we're trying to achieve, some of the hurdles that we find, and, and how that intersects with democracy. Um, so, firstly, you know, market-based competitive distributed generation is reducing costs for ratepayers. This includes battery storage, and as soon as solar and battery systems are cost-competitive with fossil fuel-based centralized power, I believe that the demand for solar energy will eclipse that of fossil energy. Um, the rest of the revolution represents the first-time consumers have been able to directly choose where their energy comes from, and they are by and large choosing clean. The second thing is there are no significant technical barriers to our deployment of DG solar that justifies slowing down or hampering a market for distributed generation. All efforts going forward today should be put towards moving these things forward and not trying to compromise on behalf of last century's energy models. And then finally, how the grid of the 21st century will be designed remains a question of our priorities and what we want to achieve. I believe we must prioritize decarbonization, low cost to ratepayers, and the empowerment of consumers. By doing so, we will remove all the obstacles to building the grid that is in democracy's best interest. So let's start with the first thing that I mentioned, which is uh, markets. Market forces and competition are reducing DG costs rapidly. Uh, DG being distributed generation. Manu uh, manufacturing costs have reduced by over 80% just from 2007 to 2012. We seem to be reaching where, uh, a point where that can't be reduced as significantly, but um, nonetheless, over the period of five years, an 80% reduction in manufacturing is, is pretty remarkable, in my opinion. There's a lot more to deployment than just manufacturing. So this is kind of how we see the problem. To win the customer, we have to focus on delivering a quality product at a price that competes with the status quo. At 35 plus warehouses generally on the eastern seaboard, every decision we make is geared toward delivering the best product at a price the customer is willing to pay. As we seek to increase that capacity each year, certain economies of scale take hold. But small efficiency gains become more important. Every single discipline in our company is focused on cutting costs from financing to legal to even my department in policy. And once a quarter, uh, our co-founders, Pete and Lyndon Rive brothers, address the entire company. And I can't talk too much about what they say, but I can say two words that are repeated over and over again, reduction and cost. Um, it is time to apply the same cost-cutting mentality to electricity policy. By opening up resource capacity needs to competitive building, bidding, regulators can ensure that all the lowest cost options are considered. And the motivation for every bidder is to deliver a product that works at the lowest price. 
We have decades of evidence showing that the current sole source cost plus modeling incentivizes the opposite, and it is anti-democratic. My second point is that our nation's en engineers are tearing down the technical barriers to wider distributed solar uh, adoption. Here's an, an example. In Hawaii, um, the uh, grid operator there is a Hawaiian electric company, um, HECO. Um, they had said, we are at our resource constraint. We can no longer accept any more solar. So we sent our engineers um, to work with the National Renewable Energy Laboratories. And they found quite conclusively that the, um, the amount of resource that that grid and feeder was able to handle was uh, on an order of magnitude uh, 100 times more. Um, so that's just an example of how we can put technical resources out there to dispel myths of, of conventional wisdom. So the next step is for regulators to acknowledge that facts like these advance policies that allow the public to take action on as much distributed generation as they want. As the engineers bring down the barriers, policymakers plan to move past them. And I firmly believe that we can solve this. If it's a technical issue, and we just heard from the deputy mayor that it's largely not, um, it's a cultural issue. But if it is technical, we'll address it. Uh, if we are causing costs, we'll address those. But we exceeded our installation gu guidance in what was the worst winter in the history of the Northeast. We're very good at solving problems. We can fix the ones that are put up uh, in front of us, such as you can't put any more solar on this feeder line. The final thing I want to talk about is if the grid is, if the grid, this grid that we have now currently, if this infrastructure is not meeting the needs and the demands of the public, we need to find a way to serve the public. Um, that we invested previously in a certain way is not going to cut it as an answer any longer. I recognize that the utility is stuck in a structure that forces them to make certain decisions as a rational economic actor. It's not just in their best interest, it's their legal obligation to do so, fiduciary duty to their investors. But there are at least as many opportunities as pitfalls for them in, the, in a new distributed grid. I'll use an example um, from New York Rev um, that I like to talk about. and. Um, I'm a New Yorker, so I think it's the most important proceeding happening in the universe right now. And so as a New Yorker, um, our, we have an office in Brooklyn, New York, and two blocks from our office is a substation um, that is, was deemed, is deemed as the second most important um, substation in New York. So that, of course, makes it the second most important substation in the known universe. Um, during Sandy, that substation was about a foot of water away from being knocked out. Had it been knocked out, um, lower Manhattan already during Sandy was without power for 14 days, I think 15 days, um, which was a complete catastrophe for lower Manhattan, of course. Um, but had that one been knocked out, we would have been talking about, um, a, a bare minimum of one month for all boroughs of being able to um, get up and running. So what 
through the rev proceeding, what Con Edison asked to the New York Public Service Commission was said, like, look, we can build a $1 billion substation. But what if you let us earn a rate of return on something that's not a sun, uh, substation, something that's not a hard asset? Um, and they got proposals from the distributed energy resource providers, of which you know proposals from us, proposals from SunPower, proposals from NRG, um, to meet that same need, but with clean technology and distributed technology. And what they found was they, they estimated it's a billion dollars for that investment, and instead, uh, they came back with about $450 million uh, in proposals that they could meet the same need. So here's what you have. Um, in that situation, the, the utility can earn a rate of return on something that's not hard assets, which is fantastic for them. And in some cases, a higher rate of return has been proposed um, because they're taking a, a risk on something that's different in the past. The ratepayers are saving money. Uh, third, uh, party participants um, are able to develop their businesses and the planet makes out. So from my point of view, that's, that's just a, a better way to proceed. And to me, that's um, what success looks like. So kind of in, in closing, um, the way that we look at our business is every customer that chooses solar every residential customer that chooses solar, they're very important and, and those electrons are very important and we're excited to have them in the contract and in the family. But another thing is incurring there for them. They are looking at their electricity bill in an entirely new way. It's kind of the gateway drug to energy efficiency and um, other ways of thinking about how electricity works. So it's, it's not so much that uh, renewable energy renews democracy, but it's sort of cyclical in that democracy also renews renewable energy and vice versa, because I think they'll fundamentally um, support each other. Um, I will close with um, a quote from over 2,000 years ago um, that I think is applicable. Um, it's from Aristotle's uh, uh, Politics, um, and I think it applies uh, here. If liberty and equality, as is thought by some, are chiefly to be found in democracy, they will be best attained when all persons alike share in the government to the utmost. Uh, I think that applies here. Uh, I thank you for your time and looking forward to some questions later. Thank you very much, John. I'm sure we'll have uh, precise questions on the on the business model that allows to bring power to the people at almost no upfront cost. But before we um, we ask you about that, um, let me leave the floor to uh, Stephen Pike, who is the interim CEO of um, Massachusetts Clean Energy Center. And please, um, Steve, could you just uh, give us a precision on what this organization is? It, it is not known by everyone, so. Uh, we're very curious. No, I, I'm, I'm happy to, and, and thank you to the Kennedy School and the Ash Center for having me here. It's, it's not often that I have to follow Aristotle, so, um, you know, I hope I don't disappoint you. Um, as far as uh, what the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center is, and um, nobody should 
you know, feel bad about not knowing what it is because, frankly, I didn't either uh, before I started working there. Uh, but we're a public agency, um, technically a quasi-public agency, that is funded by ratepayers. Um, so there is a systems benefit charge on um, probably all of your um, uh, electric bills that goes into a, a trust fund. And the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center is charged with uh, spending down that trust fund uh, in a way that promotes the development of a clean energy uh, economy in Massachusetts. So we use that money in, in a number of different ways. We, um, we provide rebates for technologies. So, so you know, the, the solar panels that go on a lot of roofs um, have benefited from uh, rebate programs uh, that we have run. Um, we provide grants and uh, direct investments in companies. So perhaps companies that are, are developing the solar panels, um, although we've stepped away from that a little bit after some missteps uh, years ago. Uh, but investing in technology companies to really drive uh, innovation forward. Um, we also are charged with improving the Massachusetts and developing the Massachusetts uh, workforce, the clean energy workforce. Uh, so we do that through internship programs uh, and helping community colleges develop uh, curriculum, uh, that sort of thing, as well as buying them equipment. Um, and then lastly, we actually have uh, some um, uh, tangible capital assets, one of which, if uh, those of you who go over the Tobin Bridge, if you look to the, I suppose it's west, uh, where the, all the cars are, there's a very large box building in the middle of all that, and that's called the Wind Technology Testing Center. Um, it's a, uh, a facility that we built with federal support as well as state support um, five, six years ago. And what goes on there is the testing of large wind blades. So prototype wind blades uh, that come from all over the world um, are tested there. It can take a blade up to 90 meters long. Uh, currently, most uh, blades are in the 55 to 60 meter um, length. But that obviously is a way that we can um, assist, in particular, the wind industry, which, um, by and large, it doesn't make sense for any single player within the industry uh, to create such a facility. Uh, but it makes a heck of a lot of sense for all of them to come to Massachusetts to, you know, to use a portion of that facility over the course of any given year. So those are a few ways in which we um, in which we deploy those those dollars. We're really focused on two primary goals. One is economic development. But the second is also uh, greenhouse gas reduction. And we've been, um, I think, pretty successful uh, on both counts, but particularly economic development. Um, there we annually produce a, uh, an industry report, and the latest uh, report out in December um, uh, speaks to an industry that has uh, created um, and has 99,000 jobs um, as of about this time last year, uh, roughly 65 Hundred companies, and that's an increase over the last five years of, of 64%. So um, it's not just a you know a, a static, uh, stagnant um, industry. It's one that is uh, that is growing and, and growing at a pretty good uh, a pretty good clip. We're also uh, tasked with helping the state achieve its greenhouse gas goals, which uh, reduction goals, which you may or may not know. Um, the first goal is coming up in 2020, and that is to reduce. Um, our output by uh, uh, reduce it by 25% as compared to 1990 levels. There's also a 2050 uh, number of 80%. So those are some pretty aggressive goals. Um, Massachusetts is 
on its way, I think, um, to achieving uh, the 2020 goal, but there is a lot to be done to uh, certainly to achieve the 2050 goal. Our hope is that uh, we can certainly help in, in, uh, in that effort. So one key distinction um, with the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center is uh, something that we don't do is we don't do policy, believe it or not. Um, that is done by the Department of Energy Resources, um, which is a more or less a sister agency. We do a lot of work with the DOER, um, but they are primarily the policy uh, group. We are pro uh, primarily the programmatic group. So we hope to um, and design, design and implement programs that um, help DOER and the uh, Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs achieve its policy goals. We do contribute to the policy debate. Um, we try to do that in an objective and kind of data-driven way. Um, so if there is uh, information that might help inform a particular policy debate, uh, then we certainly jump into the fray at that point and, and do our best to provide um, information uh, that can help further that discussion. Um, so that is, that's one way that we do play in, in the policy arena. So what I thought um, I would touch on today is, um, is how uh, the clean energy industry and renewables in particular, as well as Mass CEC, um, help to uh, kind of break down barriers, which frankly, in my view, is, is in part what, um, what democracy is all about. It's a continu continuing evolution and as barriers are uh, put up to, uh, to um, either hinder or in some way slow down that evolution. Um, there are folks, there are technologies, um, there are you know movements and what have you that come along to break down those barriers. So I'm gonna uh, talk um, hopefully relatively briefly um, so that we can get to questions on three primary points. One is um, consumer control, uh, which is a theme that, um, that Sean touched on. Another is economic opportunity. And the third is collaboration, um, which a, a few folks have, have touched on. So consumer control, um, you know, how is that breaking down um, barriers? Like, I think that the, you know, the solar example is, is a very good one in that, um, you know, the more control that you give people over their, their energy and their power um, uh, choices, um, the, uh, you know, the less they are dependent upon um, the utility. Um, and that is, can be a very um, empowering, uh, empowering dynamic. Um, and it's one that is created um, not just by cultural shifts, but also um, by the decrease in costs of these various technologies. As markets develop, as supply chains um, develop, it, it drives down costs. It makes those technologies far more accessible. Um, it makes a heck of a lot more sense for um, folks, not just Elon Musk, but Sean, as well as perhaps me, uh, to invest in those in those technologies. Um, the, you know, the, the primary example that we hear most often is solar, where um, where costs have, have uh, you know dropped dramatically over the last five or six years, and has really re led to um, an explosion in that industry and the deployment of that technology in a lot of states, certainly in in Massachusetts. Um, in fact, Massachusetts just uh, uh, past the one gigawatt of installed capacity um, just last month uh, in December, as a matter of fact. So, um, you know, that, that drop in cost has really accelerated the deployment. 
a newer uh, set of technologies, we refer to them as clean heating and cooling technologies, and even I don't really know what that means, but it's basically air source and ground source heat pumps as well as um, various biomass uh, fueled technologies. Um, those, we launched a pilot uh, program uh, just last year, and we saw the uptake of those technologies was twice what we expected. Um, and I think that that is in part due to a cultural shift, but also, um, you know, some of the programs um, that we have been uh, running to make that technology more available, as well as just the technology development itself. Uh, you know, the costs have come down significantly again over the last five or six years in, uh, in particular. Another one that I think, um, you know, we've seen, we don't have so much of it in Massachusetts, a little more in northern uh, New England, although there's a, a chance that we may see it in the water off of Massachusetts um, uh, coast, is wind. And that is a technology, again, whose costs have dropped considerably over the last 20 years. Um, and in Europe, you've seen the offshore wind drop uh, dramatically, really, in the last four to five years. Those are um, those are forces that we're hoping to corral here in the United States and in, in Massachusetts, um, uh, again, to make, you know, that power available to, uh, to consumers. And as consumers and, you know, the polling, uh, for those of you who are into politics and the like, the polling shows quite clearly, um, you know, an uptick in acceptance of these new technologies that folks aren't familiar with as those prices come down. Um, the more that they can afford it, the more willing they are, uh, you know, to, uh, to take it on. Um, but it's it, one challenge that I think uh, government in particular is, is, is well suited to try to, um, to try to address is making these technologies available um, to everybody. Um, and as uh, affordable as they have become for, um, for some, they are still very unaffordable for, uh, for many. It's a, it's a focus um, that we have had in particular over the last year um, with the, in, excuse me, incoming Baker administration um, to really figure out how to make these technologies accessible to low and moderate income uh, families and consumers. Um, just, uh, just last week, it was just last week that the, um, that the governor announced an initiative um, where we will be working with the DOER to uh, develop programs and um, uh, focus some funding on making these technologies more affordable to those folks who can least afford them. So, you know, I think that as um, as these choices expand and, um, you know, and consumers uh, have the ability to make independent decisions about where their power can come from, you'll see, you can see, you know, again, these, these barriers starting to, uh, starting to fall. Um, and that is a, you know, that's a significant threat to utilities and, and they're re reacting as, as you might um, expect them to. But I think that, uh, you know, over time that too, uh, that too will come, will come together. Um, so the second area was, was economic opportunity. And as I mentioned, um, the, you know, the industry in, in Massachusetts um, has grown dramatically over the last five years. Um, you know, these jobs span a pretty wide spectrum um, of the uh, of the workforce, there are the solar installers who are on the roofs putting um, Sean's panels up there. Uh, there are you know manufacturers who are assembling um, the two uh, the new technologies and those the folks uh, in those manufacturing facilities. You know this day and age, um, it tends to be a pretty sophisticated operation um, that requires a you know a relatively um, 
uh, robust skill set. Uh, there are researchers at universities, um, you know, like Harvard and MIT as well, so I hear. Um, they're not just here at Harvard. Um, and there are certainly uh, students, be they, at, you know, at, at Harvard or MIT or WPI or, or um, you know, what have you, that are, are coming up with the newest ideas. They could be new business models. They could be new technologies. It's, um, you know, it's, it's those folks that we need to figure out um, how to draw out of the, out of the woodwork as well. And as these companies mature, then, you know, they start to bring in not just the folks that are developing the technology, not just the folks that are trying to sell it, but they start to bring in folks, you know, like Sean, who are doing policy, or people like me, I'm sorry to say, uh, was at one point in time a lawyer, you know, they need legal help, they need HR help, um, that sort of thing. And so it, it, you know, it starts to build on itself um, in a, you know, in a way that, um, that you don't see it in the earlier stage, in the earlier stage companies. One of the challenges, though, particularly in Massachusetts, is that most of the jobs in Massachusetts, most of these clean energy jobs, nearly three-quarters of them, um, are, are relatively high-paying. And so why is that an issue? Well, typically, to be, uh, you know, be uh, high-paying, you need to have a pretty highly developed skill set. And again, that, is, um, you know, that requires education and training that isn't available to all. Um, and so one of our challenges as, as an agency is, again, uh, breaking down some of those barriers, making these opportunities, these job opportunities available um, to folks who may not have the skill set starting out of the block that is necessary um, to apply, never mind actually um, obtain one of these jobs. So we have a, a very, um, very uh, laser-focus on, um, on workforce development and continually creating uh, programs that not only build on um, on existing skill sets, but draw new people into uh, into the industry and into the clean energy economy. Um, I think that that you know some of those efforts have been um, I think have been uh, validated in some of the recent news that you've seen of. Um, in particular, of GEs uh, wanting to come to uh, wanting to come to Boston, not just their headquarters, but last fall, they uh, decided to bring their essentially their clean energy, their new clean energy um, unit to Boston. And one of the reasons is because of the uh, the talented um, uh, the talented workforce. Uh, they um, it's interesting. They describe their one billion dollar company as a startup company. Um, which I think any startup in Massachusetts would, would enjoy that, uh, that bankroll. Um, so touching um, on the last, um, uh, the last theme that I mentioned, which is collaboration. Um, you know, frankly, it's, it, it's, a forum, uh, it's a forum like this that I think can really help to, uh, to foster that collaboration, um, whether it be uh, between Lyon and, and uh, Boston, um, or uh, you know between Massachusetts and uh, and France, but as I think as anybody knows that's lived in a democracy for a while, uh, you know one of the key tenets of it is a free exchange of ideas, right? And uh, that is certainly the kind of thing that um, that we're trying to encourage um, encourage here. But that's also um, one of the uh, motivating and driving uh, forces behind the Mass CEC is we very much, particularly because we're in Boston, and if you're in Boston, you have to be a hub, but we certainly see ourselves as a hub of the clean energy industry, really bringing people together 
um, and creating, uh, again, environments in which we can all exchange ideas and, uh, you know, learn from models that have either failed or that have either or succeeded in the past. Um, we're, we're constantly looking at what other states have done, uh, what other countries have done. Uh, we're working with cities to figure out what other cities have done. We look at utilities to, to see what other utilities um, have done. And so again, breaking down those barriers, creating uh, avenues for, for communication and innovation is, is one of our, our, key, um, our key foci. Looking at some some of the different levels um, internationally, you know, uh, France has been um, a terrific uh, partner uh, for us. In particular, uh, a number of the companies, uh, French companies, have come and set up in in Massachusetts. Schneider is here. Angie, uh, Saint Gobain. Saint Gobain, in fact, is um, set up a small lab in Greentown Labs, which is over in Somerville. A uh, frankly, a, a world leading clean tech uh, incubator. And uh, one of the attractive features for many of the companies there is the fact that they have a big company like Sangoban who has brought this, uh, not just the technology, but also the know-how. Um, you know, they're bringing that to bear for these small companies as, uh, as they develop their products and, and their business models. We also, and, and the ambassador uh, touched on it um, uh, uh, briefly, we, uh, Massachusetts signed on to the under two MOU which, um, you know, again, is, um, is an indication, I think, of its commitment to looking beyond its, its own borders um, for, uh, for solutions and, and perhaps ways in which we can help um, others find their, find their own solutions. Regionally, there's been a big emphasis, particularly over the last year or so, of regional solutions. We're, uh, we put out a, a request for proposal um, together with Connecticut and uh, Rhode Island looking for uh, power um, power proposals um, companies that would you know provide all three states with um, with energy solutions that's something that um, certainly in New England is, has been relatively unique we're also working um, with uh, New York and Maine and Rhode Island on an offshore wind um, program to really try to figure out how we as a collection of states could perhaps drive that industry uh, forward. That is, that's something that uh, is being done with federal funding, uh, and is an effort that um, you know that that uh, is well underway, and, and is we're hopeful will be wrapped up by by the end of the year. Um, on the municipal level, we run programs that are that are based um, that are community based. One of the more popular over the years has been Solarized Mass, which is a bulk buying um, program that communities run. Um, and in, in some cases, uh, uh, multiple communities will band together um, and create that a program across those borders, and, and uh, you know find the commonalities and work together in order to make that uh, make that work. It's it's um, resulted in a, a fair bit of again solar uh, deployment in, in particular. So I you know I, to to wrap up because I would like to would like to get to um, questions as I'm sure there are some. It's it's a, um, it, I quite frankly, before contemplating um, this discussion, had not really thought of our mission um, in such a broad uh, and frankly somewhat intimidating uh, context. Um, I, I haven't, you know, thought of it in terms of uh, sort of sustaining democracy or how democracy might sustain the industry or drive the industry. 
Um, but I do think that you know there are there are a number of, of um, kind of themes and concepts that that you can pull out. Uh, I certainly think that you know that breaking down barriers is something that we do uh, on an everyday basis, um, and I'm hopeful that if um, if it's not necessarily uh, helping to sustain or or uh, drive democracy forward, that it at, at a minimum is uh, is certainly helping to drive the clean energy industry in Massachusetts. Um, to new and greater heights. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen. Uh, now, I, I thank you all very much. Uh, your presentations make very apparent that there's an, an objective alliance uh, between markets and consumers and where costs um, uh, play a crucial role. As far the, as far as the citizens are concerned, uh, it seems a bit more difficult for people to relate directly to the issue of being a green citizen or to actively contribute to um, to remedy to climate change. And this is why organizations like yours are very important. You educate, you provide grants. You also, I would like to mention for the students here, you provide grants for students of, the, of Massachusetts. That's important <clears throat> to know. Um, so consumer citizens, uh, markets, innovation work hand in hand. And, and citizens need, need leadership like yours, uh, Mrs. Donia Sous. We haven't quite spoken about regulations. And I am told that there are uh, heated debates these days in Massachusetts about uh, the regulation of the prices of uh, solar credits. Uh, this is maybe something we'll touch upon later. But for now, I welcome uh, questions from the audience, including very simple questions, because those issues, again, are still, I think, a bit complex. And we are here to try to make them less complex, more democratic, more easy to grasp, and uh, easier to relate to. Um, I so welcome your, your questions, but in, in the meantime, I would like to say that we have here with us uh, two uh, professors at Harvard, Sheila Jestanov, who is a professor of science and technology uh, studies, and um, Henry Lee, who is the director of the Environment and Natural Resources Program at the Belfer Center, who co-sponsors uh, this event. Uh, feel free to uh, step in and to add some comments to this debate if uh, you'd like. Uh, I think your expertise will, would be highly valued. But we have a first question here. So Nicolas, who is a... I have a two-pronged question, mainly for Sean and, and Karine Donia-Sauz, which is one on the dark side of the force, the other one is on the right side of the force. The dark side is we've been talking about smart a lot, uh, and smart as representing the metaphor of power distribution back to the people. Distributed power seems to be the metaphor of giving back the power to people. My problem to that, and I like your comments on that, is that generally we forget to see that there is an intermediary which are generally algorithms, computing powers. And we tend to delegate to a set of algorithms which are in charge of optimizing networks and processes what has generally been done so far in our current uh, political software by collective intelligence, representative democracy. Uh, are we, I'm not sure we are aware of that. I'd like your comments on that. And, and uh, the second part of the question, which is on, on the right side of the force, particularly to you, Sean, is the fact that when people invest in solar city, they seem to be buying, in a way, a call option on the price of CO2 whenever it comes. And so you have uh, with you foot soldiers to basically defend and demand 
pricing of CO2. How do you harness that and how do you uh, uh, harness that basically? All right, so maybe Sean, you should really present um, the business model of, of uh, Solar City and how you provide uh, distributed electricity before you can answer that. I'm not sure everybody's familiar with. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I mean, so I mentioned 2006, and in fact, we actually were uh, a Solarize. That was our first project, Solarize Phoenix, was our first um, sort of group of projects, um, and we had success with that and, and grew from there. Um, but our first was what we called dumb solar, um, which is you put, you slap some glass on a roof, it generates electrons, you engage in a policy known as net metering, you're not home, meter goes backwards, gives you credits, you come home, goes the other way, nets out at the end of the month, um, mostly over the end of the year. Um, that's very simple, right? Glass, roof, electricity, consume. Um, where, and we do that by providing upfront, uh, financing. So the, the dilemma that we had faced, uh, up until this point, 2006 was, it was two economic events. One is cost benefit. All right. Uh, all the cost upfront, uh, at the time of 2006, probably looking at a standard home at about $40,000. Maybe as, maybe as high as $50,000 at that time. It's much lower than that now um, in the teens, frankly. Um, but if you were going to buy that, you needed forty dollars or $50,000. All the benefits were to come over the next few years, um, seven, eight, nine, ten years, depending on where you live, your payback period, when, when that would realize the benefit. What we wanted to do was marry that economic coincidence together so that the benefits and the costs would be realized at the same point. Now, obviously, you reduce your benefits at the back end. They, they come to us or whoever the owner of the, the system is more. Um, but you get a solar system, and you start saving immediately. So we do that primarily through a lease or PPA uh, agreement. Um, they look very similar. We also have another product called MyPower, which is a loan, uh, which was released two years ago. And then, of course, you can buy it outright if you still have $50,000 laying around, um, which is a fine thing to do with $50,000 if you have it. Um, so that's, that's where we started. And it was deploying those in their, what I'm, I've called dumb solar. More and more, we are trying to develop smart solar and turn the grid into a, a distributed force where the benefits can be realized. Now, this is a huge challenge. Um, I think there are easy lifts in that before we have to get into large algori uh, algorithms to manage that um, and manage what, how these systems are speaking with one another, how we can interact with utilities and offer them data and services to make sure that the grid remains reliable during outage events or potential outing, outage events, um, how we can allocate. So what I'm talking about is pairing your solar with some storage and you can envision a, uh, and we've proposed these um, across the region uh, where we work with the utility and we say, we're going to deploy 5,000 systems within your service territory, couple them with storage, and we're going to give you data and reliability on 
at certain critical times when the grid needs the most um, backup. And you can envision that two days before a, a large winter event coming, um, you know, coordinating with your utility counterpart, coordinating with probably folks in the governor's offices around the region and saying, we have this much power to provide in the case of an event in Saugus. Um, or am I, is, people know where Saugus is? Yeah. Um, or, or wherever um, it, it may be, Cambridge. Um, so I think that starts to get to that and answers the, the business model question. Yeah. What was the other component? Oh, the dark side and the light side. Right, right. Yep. So we we run into difficulties with uh, incumbent powers who are not entirely happy about the switch from fossil to clean energy, and they're losing their perceived loss of the stake in that game. And we do call upon them. Uh, at times to respond um, to those threats to the uh, innovative, clean, distributed economy. So we do, we, we, we certainly speak. I think we, we have an amazing relationship with our customers. Um, it's one we take very seriously because it's, the, the, the agreements that folks are signing are 20-year arrangements, right? So I don't think the average marriage lasts that long these days. Um, so we take that very seriously. <laughs> and... Um, and we communicate with them a lot, and, and they tend to be very interested in policies, right? They're people who want, exactly, it's like this call option on the price of carbon and are saying, I want to do something about it. Um, I like saving money, that's very important to me, but I also want to do something about this. And so they're very responsive when we, we ask them to participate. Thank you. Uh, Sheila Jesanov, you have a question. Where is the microphone? It's, it's for me. Oh, great. Uh, more of a comment. <laughs> yeah, it's more of a comment because uh, it's more of a comment prompted by the title of this um, event, which in a way is maybe a teensy bit misleading compared with what we've actually been hearing about. Um, because although the word democracy has come up a lot, uh, it's come up mainly in the context of casting the demos, the people, in the role of consumers and suggesting solutions that make things better for consumers. So yesterday, in a state not too far from here, we had an exercise in democracy, and the candidate who was best at purveying solutions um, got a rather disappointing tranche of the vote, um, and the people with whom she did best uh, the gender will tell you which candidate I have in mind in case you missed it. Uh, the people with whom she did best were people over the age of 65 and households over 200,000 income. Uh, so that something about the solutions-oriented leaders of our democracy uh, seems not to resonate with the people who want to be setting the agenda in terms of defining what the problems are. Uh, there may be a mismatch, in other words, between the kind of democracy that says, here is what the problems are, 
and the kind of democracy that says, we know what the problems are, now give us the best solutions. Uh, in terms of the problem-setting agenda people, uh, they seem to want revolution. Revolution is not very consistent with setting prices and getting technological solutions out there. Sean, you were very upfront about this when you uh, had this little phrase in there saying, if the solutions are technological, we can provide them. Of course, they may not be, you said, right? And then the, the mayor's point about Lyon and the cultural shift. So what I am struck by as a student who looks at scientific and technological change and its implications for contemporary societies, local, national, and global, for many, many years, that is my topic of study, uh, is the ways in which the imagination of what democracy is has cut across our speakers here. Uh, democracy is not, with all due respect, satisfied by a business model. I mean, me, a wealthy, educated, highly attained, consumer in Massachusetts, I may want to reduce my electric supply bill and become one of your 20-year consumers. I may be your target population. But the immigrant community in Lyon, which doesn't even maybe know what the center of silk has to do with the history of the town and why that is one of your regional developments was very interesting to me. To what extent does it actually go back to the manufacturing base and the idea of community in your city, which has a very distinguished past, but as a manufacturing center that prized artisanal manufacturing and localized capacity of the kind that our colleague Robert Putnam wrote in his classic study of democracy in Italy, where he had a theory of how democracy and productivity relate. And the answer was, get local, you know, and become regionalized. So I would be very interested in hearing you say more about how the population, the much more diverse population of Lyon today, fits into the envisionings of the way that you're discussing the, the future of the city. I mean, I, I repeat that everything I've heard from all of you and from the ambassador, uh, it sounds glorious. I mean, you know, it's optimistic, there are solutions and so on and so forth. But when you look at the on the ground situation, when the ambassador says Paris is getting together with Dakar, I wonder who he's getting together with or who who in Paris is getting together with whom in Dakar. I actually have a Fulbright student right now in Dakar, and his vision of the bottom-up set of problems is that the Dakarois are maybe thinking more about the kind of poverty that leads people to risk the crossing of the Mediterranean to very uncertain futures in Europe, um, more so than how the trash can be converted into renewable systems of energy supply. So I have, in the climate change area, you have a very elite body, the IPCC, determining what the policy, what the problem is for the globe, and then people like you, who are among the most imaginative, accomplished, intermediate policy implementers in the world, but you are enacting a vision that remains at the end extremely top-down. If you go to the 
hut in India where nobody is per capita consuming that much carbon and is using only cow dung to fuel their cook stoves, uh, you have a kind of renewable, which is related to a kind of demos that I don't hear very much about in the kinds of things you're talking about. And, you know, you mentioned this poignant thing about Solyndra. I mean, you know, Solyndra left the American public with, after all, a half billion dollars in debt repayment that somehow got swallowed up. And, I mean, I am totally in favor of the current administration and its attempts to solve the energy problem. But I'm saying that the energy problem does not look like the energy problem as you people are thinking about it throughout the entire world. And if we're really interested in harnessing democracy, we would maybe ask first what the different demosses around the world are thinking about as the problem to which we then go about offering solutions. Well, thank you very much, Sheila. Uh, it is a, a very good point and um, a crucial a crucial point of how to tackle climate change. And you deal with a pr very profound issue, which is what are the drivers behind change to adapt to climate change? Of course, we, will, we would all prefer to be virtuous citizens and uh, all egalitarian. The truth is that sometimes you need the, the obscure um, aspect of the force, interest, and selfishness to drive innovation and investment. And this is, this is you know, Machiavellian here. We are dealing with a Machiavellian problem, which is you want good, you want green good, but to reach green good, you will have to face um, interest, selfishness. And, you know, America is a, is a country where uh, market is, is very well embedded in democracy, maybe more than in France. So uh, your question calls to uh, proactive leadership, to savvy regulators, to social justice. I agree with you. Bernie Sanders uh, won New Hampshire primary yesterday. This is a sign we should also listen to that signal, not only market signals. That's true. But um, we have this technological innovation, which will work and will spread thanks to companies like SolarCity, which might be, um, you know, better shared if organizations such as um, uh, Mass Clean Energy Center educate, provide grants to communities. And um, there was a student here from Bangladesh. I don't know if she's still here. She seems to have left. Uh, when you talk about solar energy to students, to people of the global south, uh, yeah, they, they see, okay, market, interest, it's not very uh, demos, or it's, it's not very Aristotelian, but they see the reducing of costs for their community. And this really speaks to, you know, to social justice, to growth, to investing um, um, hundreds of gigawatts like uh, Modi wants to do in India. So I think that the question, you, you're very, very right to, to pose it. But the answer is, you know, it's complex, and that's why we are here, I think. Thank you for your very good point. Would you like to add something, Karine um, uh, Donien-Sauz? Because being from a different, you know, background, uh, where France is really, you know, we, we, of course we deal with markets, but, but market is not the primary actor um, of democracy. This is not what comes to mind, and this is Sheila's point. How do you... Um, how do you think you um, you trigger change and you you, you trigger the, the cultural 
shift that you mentioned. Is market something you, you put as a prominent tool or not? Not at all. I think that's uh, what we have to have in mind now is that a collaborative um, approach is a new standard. So we really need to change the mo how we think, how we engineer even the initiative. And uh, we, um, we need to have this partnership with, you know, between public, private, but also with the population. And uh, it's really something that is not new. What is new is the approach that we have to develop to make it happen. And it's why we need to be very focused on giving the room for community to create themselves because you cannot interact with a large population. You can interact with, you know, smaller community that have uh, uh, the same interest where you can get a high contribution. So um, it's also, for example, um, regarding SMART, um, behind smart, the core question is how to live with technology. Uh, technology is not a solution by itself. It's just a mean. It's just, you know, it's somehow it's nothing. What, what is very important is the progress that we can have behind that. And for example, be, behind smart, you can have a city that is funded by technology, which is one option. You can have also a city that where you enhance the capacity of players to provide, you know, um, uh, ideas, solution, option, and mm. you deal with that as a public authority. And you can have a model of city that is purely contributive, uh, where you really have to, you know, th that is very bottom up. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's how we need to, to, to think as a city leader. And what is very, very important for us is really to look future with desire. I think that the problem that we have in France is that we're not optimistic enough. And you need to believe in something to do something. I mean, you know, uh, and to have, you know, like uh, uh, an open windows uh, somewhere. And it's where we need to create story, not just, you know, promise things that things that can cannot cannot happen but i need that we need to get back to uh, uh confidence in, into something mm. speaking of which i would like you to i mean if, if you yeah well, you would well, like to I, I do want to take a uh just a brief uh, sort of stab at it is um just thinking about this I, you know it's difficult to address as a straight white male who grew up in the berkshires of massachusetts and talk about the problems of the world and and pretend that not that I don't care, I care deeply. It's just, it's difficult to absolutely and fully impact uh, with, with full empathy in every sense of that word, understand it top to bottom. So I'm just, I, I'm recognizing that it's difficult for me to, to speak with, you know, full intelligence and knowledge about, about all the, those problems. The, one of my favorite and I think it's probably of many uh, writers growing up with Shel Silverstein, um, great playboy author, um, but um, also a poet. And one of my favorite stories um, was the poem about the, the young girl who decides she wants to eat a whale. And um, she eats it piece by piece. Um, and there's two, there's two sort of takeaways from that. I, and I never settled on what I think is the message of that poem. The first is if you set about a big problem and take little pieces out of it, you can solve anything. The other is by the end of the poem, she's old and, and dies. Um, and all she did with her life was sit around and eat a stupid whale. Um, right. So as we look at this problem, our role in it 
of climate change is to bring some solution and democracy is certainly and consumers are not voters and consumers aren't the same though we end up treating them that way often um am i wasting my time working on a little problem that's so big that at the end of my life i will have just died solving solar access for rich white people is that something that i or well, that's true. That's true. That's true. Right. And the perception, uh, I, the perception is that it's, uh, that's, that's the claim that we get a lot from the utilities. Um, so am I just solving this problem for rich folks? Um, or am I helping build a model that can scale? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Um, I, that's not something that I can answer today and hopefully I'll feel good about it in 20 years. Um, but what I can say is we have a foundation that, um, for every, um, megawatt we install in the United States, we, uh, electrify a school, um, in, um, there's been a number of places, Tibet, um, we've been to Nicaragua, we've been to, uh, Western Africa. We're working closely, um, with, um, some organ, uh, a company that I can't quite name, but is trying to work on electrifying, um, Western sub-Sahara Africa with, um, through mobile payments. And what's exciting about that is, um, folks can now skip that the, they will skip the fossil centralized grid grid entirely which is i mean people who it's like people in a lot of neighborhoods and communities now the the where you were called in the wire the burner phones but they're these phones where you can make mobile payments and and that has been uh, amazing so um those are my thoughts about about that and i i hope i didn't just give a standard corporate answer of like <laughs> Have we got a foundation? We're working on it, um, but it, we struggle with it, and we're, we're it, there's no easy answer. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you very much, John. After all, you've read Aristotle. Not everyone in solar industry uh, has read that. Aristotle. Um, <laughs> I just had a question for you, Karine Donian-Sos, because you um, you've um, uh, you have had this interesting project called Ikari, which is the collaboration between France and Japan, which is the project of a positive energy building, meaning a, uh, a compound, a building that not only not does not consume energy but produces uh -huh. energy. And this uh, is also very um, important in the um, model of city by modules with. with um, you mentioned it in your smart um, uh, smart city strategy. So, uh, would you be able to draw to describe very quickly that project and and to explain here um, how this project was initiated, how the population was informed, and how you uh, triggered or received support from the citizens of Lyon to to fund or to accept such a project? Or, I mean. If, if it was funded by, by foreign um, uh, money, by Japanese uh, funds, that's perfect, must have been. The Ikari project that you are mentioning is part of the Lyon Smart Community okay, Project. Give, yeah. So it's just a, um, one thing among, you know, these Lyon Smart Community things. Because uh, 
Energy that is produced by this set of building feed this cost sharing system. And in this project, maybe um, the, the second the phase that has been, you know, the most challenging, challenging is more the eco-renovation of the social housing that I was mentioning. Um, and we, we try, you know, to convince this um, inhabitant that were in this social housing uh, to use, you know, um, a box um, and to look at their consumption mm -hmm. and to change, you know, the way they were living just because they were more informed, uh, they got more information. But it was, I said, the primary, uh, uh, you know, concern was not that at all. It was not about energy. It was about the condition of life. Mm -hmm. uh, so regarding the security uh, project, I will say that we don't we we haven't got any issue or any difficulties with the population because it's a very positive project. It's just you know very innovative, and the acceptation of that has been very simple. Uh, what has been uh, I mean maybe a bit tricky for us is that this Lyon smart this Lyon smart community project, including that different you know. Uh, things was an experimentation. It was not a, a pure uh, final services that was provided to the, to the population, which means that we had to explain that we were trying something that could fail or that could succeed or that could partly fail or succeed. Uh, and it's exactly what happened. Uh, the Sikari building is a success. The car sharing system that has fed this data, you know, to the demonstrator um, as a hand. And now we have to uh, redirect this experimentation to other car sharing system that we have in the city. And we have to explain to the population that, that you know, as a public authority, ready to take risk, but uh, with uh, good reason, is that we really try to produce innovation, not directly ourselves, but to help the private partners uh, to make it happen and also to better, you know, interact each other. Because, you know, we don't really want to organize a city transformation just with one solution that will come from one private partners. We want to be, you know, um, an area where this inter interaction can happen and where, you know, different big groups have to discuss together because uh, no one of, the, of, of them uh, owns the solution. As a solution will come from, you know, this collaboration between them, also with, you know, startup, also with, you know, the research, um, the research uh, researchers, and you know, the solution that can come from academic, the academic world, and it's where, you know, our role is important, is because we can create that space uh, of interaction between all these players that come from very diverse. Uh, expertise that are very different and just because they have something to do together and the population is part of that they are an element of that uh, and where you're right is that um, of course it's it, it's very it's very difficult to to explain that but um, it's just um, something that we do on the ground I mean it's uh, it's at the scale of the district so you know uh, it's in, with this proximity that we can, you know, uh, have this uh, right interaction and uh, right involvement of the population. We, we went to the apartment, we explained that, you know, why we were doing that, why we were expecting from, you know, the population. Um, and also we had to, um, uh, to explain, you know, if you give your data, it's because of that, like a new contract 
So, so you, you know, were monitoring very closely the yes, people who were closely. living in this unit so that the consumption be yes. not only negative but positive. Yes. And I suppose this is a lot of work from yes, the part of... Yes, but it's, uh, it's what you need to do. And people because, are... Because, you know, when we talk about energy or even, you know, electricity in France, the relationship with ele electricity is not there at all. It's something very invisible. So you, you need first to create that. You cannot just say, okay, you have to manage better your, your energy and so on. It doesn't mean anything so you for have many kind of people. Smart meters. So you, you need to start, you know, you need to take a step back and say, okay, so uh, it's because of that. Or sometimes find different um, driver. For example, it's why I was mentioning mobility. Because uh, if you ask to people to use, uh, you know, bike sharing, okay, Okay, uh, but you know it's it's maybe not what I want to do. If you show that using bike bike uh, sharing is cool, it's like a new social norm. You succeed, you know, in implementing these new practices in the city. It's why you know uh, this notion of lifestyle is very important because it's a driver, and it's something that works. And you can reach your objective of reducing, you know, the use of car with that. Not in talking about energy, but because you're, you're about another story. Yeah. Do we have um, more questions? Yeah, um, I'm going to give the, the floor to you, because you have not spoken yet. Uh, can you introduce uh, yourself, please? David, sorry. I'm David Chouvelon. Actually, I was born in Lyon, and uh, I'm now uh, living here in Boston, uh, running a company for um, energy recovery uh, for uh, for homes. We don't talk much um, when when the goal is to reduce uh, carbon footprint. Uh, the talk generally is about uh, renewable energy, but really the the biggest the low hanging fruit here is conservation. Uh, building conservation when mm -hmm. you want to keep your coffee hot you can heat it up with the sun or you can put it in a thermos bottle and that's really the scale of the, the opportunity here and I believe your company is also going to be uh, at uh, the BE uh, 16 the building energy 16 in Boston the NESI uh, Northeast Sustainable Energy Alliance so we are also a sponsor of that uh, event and why is um, that the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center not uh, uh, sponsoring uh, renovation for building air tightness and just solar panel uh, generation. <laughs> yeah, that uh, it's an excellent question and one we often ask ourselves. But the um, the reason is um, is essentially this again another split that doesn't frankly make much intuitive sense. Um, but um, that is a set of programs that is run by the DOER and the utilities, essentially, um, and is something that we have not been charged with. We have been charged specifically with renewable energy. And so that is a challenge, and that's one of these, um, you know, one of these areas of collaboration where um, we, in fact, we were just this afternoon, we were talking about how we can better um, integrate uh, renewables analysis into energy efficiency audits because by and large those you know the folks come out and they whether it's coming to your house or your business they come out and they tell you this is how you can be more efficient but they don't tell you well if you added you know solar with storage um, uh, or you added a heat pump or a biomass uh, boiler or something of that sort you know this would be the benefit um, 
So uh, that is um, that is something that I think we need to do a better job of um, is making sure that those two efforts are uh, working in unison. Um, and as to your specific question as to why we aren't uh, sponsoring, it's because generally speaking, that you know is is in another uh, government agency, which can be certainly um, frustrating uh, to say the least. Um, and probably, um, you know, at times detrimental um, at the worst. Um, but that is that's the that's the basic split, and that's why you'll hear us focus on on renewables and, and others focus on on efficiency. That said, the efficiency programs have been terrifically successful in Massachusetts, as you may or may not know. Um, five years in a row of nation-leading uh, efficiency mm -hmm. gains. So, hopefully, we'll make this year number six. Um. Thank you, uh, Stephen. Um, Henry Lee, you have a question? So I just want to make a couple of, like, two remarks. Yes, uh, please. Um. Uh, thank you. Uh, the first uh, is that one of the things that we have sort of skipped over is that there are substantial subsidies that have are out there, uh, many of them for uh, uh, renewable energy, many of them for fossil energy. And in some communities, the renewable energies are, uh, subsidies are greater. Uh, and therefore, if you happen to be a beneficiary of those subsidies, uh, these programs are terrific. If you happen to be paying those subsidies and are not a beneficiary, these programs can be extremely regressive. And it's not all the same in every community. I mean, um, Massachusetts is probably favoring solar at the moment or, or, or renewable energy. I just got finished talking to a, a group from India which pointed out that if you're a residential customer or an agricultural customer, your electric rates are so low that it's very hard for solar to be competitive in a lot of these villages in India. Um, and so there the subsidies work the other way. But you can't forget that um, subsidies have an enormous impact in this area. The other thing I would just point out, if you go back in history and you look at how the electric industry um, started, it started as a decentralized system. Uh, it started with nothing but DG. And you had your own systems in your basement. Uh, then they went to neighborhood systems for a long time. I mean, when if you go back to, let's say, um, the uh, first decade of the 20th century, uh, you had 48 utilities in Chicago. Uh, you had numerous utilities here in Boston. Um, and over time, what you saw was a consolidation because it became cheaper to provide centralized power. Um, and uh, you went from about 15 cents a kilowatt hour down to 2 cents a kilowatt hour simply by the whole mode of centralization. Now, one could argue that building big wind farms is cheaper than putting a one windmill in your backyard. One could argue that building a five megawatt array is going to be cheaper than sticking a one, uh, a one kilowatt system on your house. Um, again, this will vary place to place, but the reality of this is that there was a reason that we went from a DG type of system uh, at the turn of the century, uh, turn of the last century, uh, to the system that we have today. So, and I guess the last point I would try to make is that the challenges that we're facing, you have a goal of 80%. I mean, have you ever sat down and thought about how you can get to 80% with today's technology? Have you even thought about the technologies that might evolve? This is an enormous challenge. I mean, I've had my students do this. We can get to about 45 to 50. 
but getting from 50 to 80 is enormously difficult. And so while it's a lot of things you're doing are wonderful and a lot of these pilots are great and a lot of what is going on, starting with the Paris Accord and the Xi-Obama agreement are great steps. But the challenge ahead of us is very large, and we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back that these little steps are going to get us there. We're going to have to make giant steps in a very short period of time. Thank you for your comment, Henry. Um, the gentleman uh, here, um, Hannah, sir, okay, that, that would be the, the last one. So if anybody has one question, we could bundle them, but this is the last. Oh, and so we'll take two and bundle them. Short, <laughs> please. The yeah. Three references, the EU, California, Cambridge, Massachusetts are all phasing in zero net energy building standards starting in 2017 to 2030. So that's going to be a major change. Uh, South Korea and Denmark, I think through the UN, there's been talk here about green growth. There's a green growth institute in Seoul that people should be aware of. The third thing, Grameen Shakti in Bangladesh has solarized a million poor people using the kind of funding mechanisms that Solar City has done, so that there are things on the horizon and and uh, and resources there that we're not particularly aware of here. Thank you very much. We'll take your uh, question as the very last one. Hi, I'm Marie-Charlotte Garin. I'm a student in Sciences Po in Paris. What worries me with the approach we have to climate change is like we seem to want to treat the symptoms rather than treating the cause. Uh, what happens, we're trying to sustain our energy needs um, as what they are today. And I feel like the way we see it with the renewables, we're like, okay, so we're just trying to fix the problem. We're trying to just go over with a new way, a new, mean, new means to achieve it. But what about um, how do we cross the bridge and how do we go from there to the point where we change our consumption? And that goes back to the question we have about how do we make the shift in the society? Because as a business, you will have to face it and it's going to impact you greatly if we make that shift. Is the consumers change and say, well, we're not going to do that anymore. And as a part of a new generation who has been greatly sensibilized uh, to the green growth and to the protection in the environment is cool, in school because that's what we do in France. I frankly don't care about the cost. I'm not, like, I know, I know what it means, but if I have to make sacrifices to just, because it's what we have to do, I'll do it. So that's a question I have for all of you. It's a very profound philosophical question between citizen and consumer and what are the drivers, subtle or less subtle, of innovation, of change, and of this you know, huge challenge that is really towering upon us and that we all need to, uh, to address in, uh, in our daily lives and practices. So we have to, uh, to uh, close for now. I uh, thank you very much for your uh, presence and contributions. This is, um, you know, one debate uh, among many others that exist at Harvard, and certainly we have not exhausted 
all the important points and aspects of this question. I hope we have uh, further opportunities, and I know there are, there will be events here at Harvard. But this is not something that we should say, okay, we dealt with this, but bye-bye, and we can now proceed to our uh, regular lives. No, the, the change will, has to be built in, has to be triggered, um, and not just, you know, and produced by very different sorts of means, and I would say every mean is good. Maybe you don't share my philosophy, which is very pragmatic and Machiavellian. Maybe you're a better citizen than I am. But I really think we need all forces on board. So I thank you very much uh, all for your uh, participation and presence. And I hope we meet uh, soon um, again. Uh, to further. Thank you very much.